You're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. We're one of just many excellent left-wing podcasts on Harbinger, and a new episode on the network that I want to recommend is one of my faves and a regular listen for me, Kino Lefter. It's a socialist film podcast hosted by Evan McDonald, and the latest pod is on a Michael Bay-produced COVID movie. And, uh, and spoiler alert, uh, Evan did not enjoy watching it. But it's always worth a listen. I really do recommend it. And that's just one of the many shows you can get at Harbinger where we are building something that challenges right-wing corporate media dominance from coast to coast. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichibuskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And today we're very pleased to have Dean Detloff on the pod. Uh, Dean recently wrote a piece for us on the Pope, the Premier, and the pandemic with the headline, Bizarre as it is to say, we could use a zealous Catholic Kenny. And Dean uh, is a Catholic lecturer at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And there he's a researcher on Christianity and the left. He's also an editor at G's Magazine and, ooh, the Canadian correspondent for the Jesuit publication, America Magazine. Dean, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to write the article. I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I, it's a fantastic article and it'll obviously be in the show notes. It, it's not a prerequisite for you to have read the article to get a lot out of this conversation. We don't want to just focus on the Pope and the Premier. We do want to talk about some broader issues as well. But the reason why I ooted Canadian correspondent is just that just sounds so fancy. You're like, you get to cover the whole country. <laughs> it feels fancy. Uh, it's a great gig, actually, because I do get to basically cover whatever I want within a certain reason. So lots of excuses to look around Canada and see what's going on. So I suppose, uh, you know, one way to start off is like, you know, what's the, what's the thesis statement of your piece? What are you trying to say? You know, the headline is, the headline is, oh, let me find it here. Bizarre it is to say we could use a zealous Catholic Kenny. And that's a direct quote from your piece. So, so make the case. Why could we use a more zealous Catholic Kenny? Yeah, you know, the title is kind of playful, right? Uh, Kenny made a career on projecting an image of being a a zealous Catholic. That's kind of his origins. He has a a storied career as a young, zealous Catholic convert and conservative. So zealous, in fact, that he's clashing with his own uh, educators back at the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit school. So, you know, a a textbook case of somebody who's trying to be more Catholic than the priests he's around. So the play in the title is to say, well... Uh, if Kenny was really a zealous Catholic, then what would that actually mean for something like governing through the pandemic? And as you mentioned, you know, the Pope has been pretty vocal about kind of his thoughts on how people should respond to the pandemic. And the weird thing about Kenny is basically every single thing that he is doing is the opposite of what Francis uh, suggests, you know, um, not only letting uh, letting people in his government travel and all that kind of thing without much consequence at first, but also uh, privileging the economy over people's health, um, you know, privileging extractive industries, all these kinds of things. Pope Francis has really made it a point to uh, rail against that stuff before the pandemic and then especially now. So the, the idea is it might seem strange to say that we want a, a zealous Catholic Kenny, given his uh, history as as a zealous Catholic. 
But uh, the the point is to suggest, well, the Catholic Church is trying to do something different right now, actually. And this is the time when Kenny has decided, actually, he doesn't really want to listen to the Pope when it comes to governance. Yeah, like being a zealous Catholic for Pope Francis is is cool because Pope Francis is the cool Pope, right? I mean, right. <laughs> uh, I, I am not a Catholic uh, and, and I'm pretty alienated from, you know, my own Christian tradition, which I grew up in, which is like a, a very patriarchal reactionary mm-hmm. evangelical tradition but uh but you know whenever the pope pops up in the headlines i mean it, it's always it's either for like he said something cool and good uh you know like um the rich are bad help the poor you know the environment you know you should think about it and and not just um throw it away for the economy uh, i think he even said something like abortion is like we probably shouldn't be focusing so much on abortion which seemed like a pretty reasonable take and uh or if he's appearing in the news, the other time I might see him in the news is when he's apologizing for some, you know, Catholic atrocity or crime that they've committed in the past. <laughs> but I mean, you know, uh, it's the Catholic Church. Um, but yeah, like the whole Pope Francis is actually like like the, the Catholic Church comes from a time from like before capitalism. Right. And mm-hmm. and there is a whole plethora of of teachings and thought and and um, and thought about, you know, that, that is just doesn't line up with, you know, 21st century, you know, neoliberalism that we find ourselves in today. And it seems that that's kind of what he's drawing on uh, in regards to like, you know, his current pronouncements, the, the things you talk about in the article, right? Like the, the, the encyclical Laudato Si and the other one, the, the one I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the Angelus, what now, what was it? Uh, his latest one is uh, Fratelli Tutti, the Angelus Fratelli Blessing Tutti. is where he was, uh, yeah, chastising people for traveling. That's the one. And is that fair to say that, like, he is drawing on this, not anti-capitalist, but, like, almost pre-capitalist tradition that is just, like, just a different formation of kind of, like, thought and approach to the world than what Kenny is kind of dogmatically <laughs> kind of governing our province with? Yeah, you know, uh, one wild thing about the Catholic Church, as you note, is it is still a medieval institution. We still have uh, Roman laws on the books that govern how the church works. All that stuff is true. Bishops, some of their titles are the princes of the church. You know, it's all very bizarre. There's lots of pageantry involved. But the the point is the church is kind of uncomfortably situated in, in all capitalist economies. Um, over the years, especially since the 1800s, it's been trying kind of unsuccessfully to figure out what to do with capitalism. Uh, sometimes it's more accommodationist and sometimes less. And as a result, the Catholic tradition, even in the, the papal teachings in the last century or so, are kind of all over the place. But one consistent thread is that the church clearly doesn't like the, uh, the capacity for abuse within capitalism. And that's a sort of through line. And by the time you get to Pope Francis, uh, you know, this is a guy who is formed by experiences in Latin America. Um, Very complicated story of his life there. Not all good, for sure. But as Pope, he's obviously imbibed a lot of uh, liberation theology and sort of more more progressive and radical understandings of how capitalism underdevelops on purpose uh, peripheral places. So he really sees himself as a Pope formed on the underside of capitalism. And so he's he's a. punching up the radical parts of the Catholic tradition. And you're right. I mean, Kenny, you know, I think that the idea that the church is out of step with contemporary society is what appeals to conservatives like a young, uh, a young Kenny, you know, uh, trying to sort of play up the church's traditional morality or things like that is a, uh, 
an easy way for conservatives to make that case. But of course, they don't uh, mind that or they don't seem to be bothered by the fact that the church also doesn't like uh, contemporary capitalist economics or all the people that basically fund all that traditional morality uh, activism. So at the end of the day, I do think there's a real confrontation between what Kenny thinks it means to be a Catholic in the world and what the Pope is actually trying to say, trying to teach as the the authority of, of our church. And this is the heart of the conflict between like what the ostensible, you know, leader of, of Jason Kenny's church, the Pope, and, and what he is saying, what he is teaching, what he is trying to transmit to his followers and what Jason Kenny is actually doing in practice as a, as a political leader and essentially as the fucking emperor of Alberta as, right. as in his current stature, <laughs> yeah, uh, in yeah. his current status. And, and this is the, like, this is the conflict at the heart of, of this piece, right? Like the Pope says one thing, Jason Kenny does another and Jason Kenny doesn't seem too troubled by it. Right. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I point in the piece to uh, a press conference that Kenny had in 2019, like soon after being elected, I think it was, where uh, Pope Francis had recently said that he supports carbon pricing um, or carbon taxing. And uh, a, a journalist asked Kenny, what do you think about that since he's the leader of your religion? And, you know, a pretty reasonable question to ask someone like uh, Jason Kenny. And his reply was, uh, well, the Pope doesn't have a vote in Alberta. Which, of course, is true. You know, you know, if you ask me, I don't really want the Pope to be determining what all states do either. But uh, it's it's ironic, like I said, that when it comes to things like uh, pro-life politics or marriage or whatever it is, Jason Kenney will happily and has happily appealed to the authority of the Pope to chastise even the bishops in Canada who are already quite conservative themselves for the most part. Um, but when it comes to issues of the economy or how to sort of think through what it means to govern in a way that's consistent with how Catholicism wants to see the world, uh, privileging the poor, privileging the environment now with Francis, et cetera, uh, those are things where Francis doesn't, or excuse me, Kenny doesn't seem to upset, right? The Pope doesn't have a vote in Alberta that matters when it comes to carbon taxing, but it doesn't matter when it comes to, I don't know, traditional understandings of marriage or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very easy for him to kind of just dismiss it because he's in power now, but, but back early in his career, Kenny's Catholicism was front and center, right? Like mm-hmm. the, uh, the video I sent you, I mean, this was a video that made its rounds uh, during the election here and, and, and it was mined for multiple stories, right? This is an address, like an hour long, more than an hour long address that Kenny gave to, I believe the Catholic homeschooling association back in like, I don't know, the early two thousands, the late nineties, the date is not mm-hmm. exactly clear. And, and this is the, the famous one where he brags about keeping, you know, the, or the, uh, activism he did in San Francisco, you know, keeping uh, loved ones from seeing each other who were dying of AIDS. Uh, you know, that was the story that made the rounds quite famously. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the video that that came from. In that same video, he talks about, you know, how he comes to, how he came to Catholicism, how he, again, like how, how Canada's bishops need to, to get with the program and start excommunicating right. these politicians who aren't doing, you know, the things that they should be doing. And, and it is it is quite a radical and even um, like fundamentalist case that he is making in uh, in these in this address. And, and these this is his early support. This is his genesis as a politician is like these are the people who supported him, who donated to him, who held him up early on his career to get him to the point where he could become someone like the premier of Alberta. 
and so it is relevant to the conversation. You know, he doesn't like to talk about his his Catholicism much uh, these days. I think uh, within the piece you mentioned that right that he you know he's got to govern for all Albertans. What was the what, how did he uh, frame it? Yeah, well, he uh, in the lead up to the election, like you said, this video was going around, but also uh, I think people were rightly, you know, mining his past and being troubled by that. And so he was grilled on a number of occasions by journalists. And it was fascinating to kind of read through all of that as I was preparing the piece and see how he was trying to kind of sort that through and navigate it. You know, the the way that he puts it is that he he regrets what he had done as a young Catholic activist. And I think that's fair, you know. I hope he does, right? <laughs> like maybe he doesn't, but uh, hopefully he he does. His conscience is pricked or something. And I, I want to give him that credit if that's the case. But uh, like I said, the the irony is um, kudos for regretting, you know, doing the absolute like advocating the most vile policies you could to uh, marginalize, especially LGBT people in San Francisco. Uh, you should regret that for sure. But uh, he nevertheless still often talks about being a practicing Catholic and a, a Catholic whose faith is important to him, etc. And I think, you know, again, it just kind of comes back to me where it's like, uh, if you finally decide that your Catholicism doesn't make a difference, how awful it must be to decide that it's uh, it's on all the issues that actually make people's lives better. That's where you don't want to be a Catholic. So if it helps you, like, ruin people's lives, then you should invoke your Catholic faith in the most zealous way possible, you know, even down to criticizing the bishops. But uh, if it comes to saying, hey, we should build a different kind of world where people don't have to suffer all the time um, so that other people can get rich, well, then your Catholicism becomes a sort of private affair and you govern for all Albertans, uh, which is code for, you know, rich Albertans in Kenny's case. Yeah, I mean, the conflict here between Catholicism and capitalism is at the heart of this, right? Like, Kenny is a, uh, I don't know what you want to call him. He's like a, a baron, an archmaster. He is he is a very senior figure when it comes to defending the concept of capitalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he he wholeheartedly believes in it, and he and he uh, minds the kind of language of free markets, the the the, na- the language of neoliberalism, to um, buttress the arguments that he makes and the decisions that he makes. You know, in regards to whatever tearing up the carbon tax, or the latest round of austerity that is hitting Alberta, and and so, you know, it's, it's not, there's, Catholicism is complicated, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. dialogue within the church about, you know, how to interpret the teachings, what, what should be the focus of the church, et cetera, et cetera. And, but it's like, how do you just ignore the Pope? You know what I mean? Isn't he supposed to, like, isn't the structure of the church, isn't he supposed to be the most important person in regards to kind of like steering the Catholic faith? Yeah, you know, um, I think I'm kind of of two minds about that issue. Um, The first thing I want to say is, so there's this obvious conflict with Pope Francis. And I think that's clear. Like you mentioned earlier, Francis is kind of a media darling. Uh, He shows up in headlines a lot. He's been really good for the church in terms of, uh, you know, PR and all that kind of stuff. And, And I think rightly so. Like, he's a good pope. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with him for the most part. Not perfect, but you know, I'll take him. But it's not just Francis that Kenny disagrees with on this point either. Uh, pope Benedict, who was quite a culture warrior and a Cold War warrior himself, um, he was also very critical of unchecked free market capitalism. Um, he wrote really famously in a conservative journal called First Things that he thought democratic socialism is probably the closest thing to Catholic social teaching in a political sense. Um, he was really uh, critical of, of capitalism to the point of saying that 
we need you know, a whole different world system of economics, um, which, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh got really upset about that, saying Benedict is a Marxist, which is such a bizarre thing, if you know anything about Benedict. Um, and the same goes for John Paul II, which would have been Kenny's kind of darling pope. Um, John Paul II is a saint now in the church, which is really complicated, but was famously conservative on all kinds of points. I mean, he's really responsible for um, characters like Kenny kind of emerging in a lot of respects. But even with that said, uh, John Paul II himself was critical of unchecked capitalism and unregulated capitalism and uh, had lots to say about how it builds a kind of culture of death, as he put it. So in that sense, I think it's important to recognize that it's not even the case that the church has made this massive pivot and now Kenny is kind of out of step. It's like his particular brand of Catholic fundamentalism was always out of step with what the Vatican has said about capitalism. So uh, that, I think, is an important thing to kind of keep in mind. Um, the second thing that I'd add here is, you know, yes, when the Pope says something, it's the duty of Catholics. We understand ourselves to, uh, you know, take that into consideration and metabolize it and see how it fits with our own conscience. And uh, that's kind of the key. Your conscience is meant to sort of allow you to navigate things that you might disagree with. You know, you're allowed to disagree with the Pope as a good Catholic, uh, provided you kind of do your due diligence. And I think whatever, Kenny is free to disagree with Pope Francis, too. But uh, if his conscience is the reason for that disagreement and his conscience is telling him that actually when it comes to neoliberalism, Pope Francis is wrong. I mean, my feeling is that that's a pretty profoundly malformed uh, conscientious judgment. Um, again, that's a conversation that we have in the church all the time. So it's not like I'm <laughs> I'm a pope or authority either. But uh, that that's my sort of knee jerk reaction as a sibling in the faith who might be in the same pew <laughs> as Jason Kenny in a cathedral or something. Yeah, and, and you brought up uh, John Paul II, and he's an interesting figure, especially, uh, you know, with regards to kind of left-wing thought within Catholicism. And I'm by no means a scholar or an expert on this. I, I leave the, the, the exact points to you. But liberation theology is this idea that was quite popular, uh, especially in, you know, South America, Latin America. And, and John Paul II was not necessarily a fan of that, and he decided to elevate kind of more reactionary, more conservative figures within the Catholic faith in, in his time in power. But liberation theology is always kind of bubbling in the background, uh, especially in kind of poorer parts of the world and in the global south. Can you kind of explain what liberation theology is and its kind of relationship to kind of left-wing Catholicism? Yeah, of course. I mean, liberation theology, I think, is the reason I'm still Catholic. So I'm always happy to, to talk about it. Um, in the Catholic Church, I should say there's lots of different kinds of liberation theology. So, for instance, there's black liberation theology that uh, really flourished in the U.S. and across Africa in the 60s with people like James Cone. There's lots of great feminist liberation theologians. Um, so it's important to kind of mention that. But uh for me, in Latin America, the kind of Catholic expression of liberation theology really starts in Peru with this guy named Gustavo Gutierrez, really amazing priest. Um, and it kind of explodes uh, in the academy, at least, with lots and lots of people all over that continent. You know, Brazil, uh, Venezuela, many other countries, uh, Nicaragua famously, really thinking hard about um, not only what it means to be a politically engaged Christian, but what it means to sort of... Uh, think through other people who are not Christians analyzing systems of injustice. So liberation theology famously had a, a very productive dialogue with Marxism and with uh, sort of um, world systems theory and sociology. 
so the big question for all these priests running around in Latin America and nuns and lay people too was, you know, we're upset about the fact that there are so many poor people here, um, so many people that are getting abused every single day by these systems that are providing us no way out, no reason for hope. And how are you supposed to preach uh, a gospel that says, you know, God proclaims good news to the poor in a society where uh, the poor are getting anything but good news. So that led them to ask questions about why people are poor, which uh, created all these really productive dialogues. That's the kind of academic side. Um, on the other hand, there's I think it's always important to say liberation theology is, is primarily a movement. So all these theologians are reflecting back on things that are happening around them. Uh, for years before the 60s, there were lots of Christians building radical trade unions, peasant federations, you know, literacy programs, all these kinds of things. And they really provoke, in a lot of respects, their religious uh, leaders to take stock of that and, and eventually endorse it. Um, so there's lots more to be said about it. But I think the biggest thing is it's this really incredible popular movement that uh, kind of crashed like a huge wave all across Latin America and the Caribbean, um, especially in the 70s into the 80s. And as you say, John Paul II, uh, that was one of the biggest flashpoints of his entire papacy was um, disciplining a lot of those folks. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the like liberation theologians or people who are adherents of liberation theology, like they grew out of, of a reaction to a lot of um, repression, like anti-communist death squads in Nicaragua, or, yeah, or right. you know, pick pick your pick your um, you know South American country that you know had a U.S. backed coup or whatever, right? Like like it, it is uh, fundamentally a reaction to like imperialism, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think uh, that's also important too, because in large part, uh, John Paul II he was from Poland and he had a whole complicated relationship with communism as a result of that. And he kind of saw the specter of repressive communism as he saw it uh, everywhere around the world. So when it came to a place like Latin America, you know, in Brazil, just to take one famous example, which had a brutal military dictatorship, um, Brazil was uh, not just the government was not just uh, repressing the Catholic Church. I mean, they were like murdering priests uh, with the help and support of the U.S. for sure. Um, and, uh, in the midst of all that, the bishops of Brazil became slowly radicalized. Um, I mean, even to the point of many bishops becoming Marxists to themselves. And in that time, the, you know, one of the saddest things in the history of the 20th century Catholic church is Pope John Paul II would constantly get in arguments with these bishops over whether or not they were getting a little too Marxist, to which the bishops would always say, well, what do you expect us to do? <laughs> are the priests that we are in charge of are being you know, imprisoned and, and murdered, and it's the Marxists that are actually trying to do something about this. So uh, you know, there's this really tragic kind of confrontation there. I will say uh, John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, who became Pope Benedict later, Ratzinger was sort of the, the police officer of theology in the Vatican. Um, the two of them, they tried first to beat liberation theology in a lot of respects, uh, silencing some pretty prominent theologians. But uh, I think over time, they realized they just couldn't. So they did end up kind of imbibing some of its teachings and filtering it in ways that definitely watered it down. Uh, but by the time you get to somebody like Francis now, I mean, he's inheriting that entire conversation and really rehabilitating a lot of liberation theology, too, and sort of confirming that all these people who suffered through those repressive regimes and responded the way that they did uh, 
Francis is is saying, you know, we understand that struggle, even if maybe we didn't at the time. And so that that brings us to today, right? And like, what does left wing Christianity look like in North America these days? Like, liberation theology is a movement that's quite popular in South and Central America, but there isn't really, in my mind, there isn't a real solid conception of like a Christian left. And and I know that's something that you think about a lot, and that you 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 research and write about a lot. But in in your mind, like, what is the state of the kind of Christian left? at the moment, uh, you know, in, say, Canada and the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. I spend a lot of time kind of agonizing over how to answer it. Um, yeah, you know, in Latin America, it's really easy to find the Christian left. You you throw a stone on the streets of Brazil and you'll probably hit some priest at a union meeting or something, right? It's kind of uh, just in the air. Um, Canada and the U.S. are different for a variety of reasons. You know, they're largely Protestant countries, barring Quebec, which has its own history of the Christian left. Um, a very fascinating history, I should say, uh, extremely interesting stuff. But in any case, you know, the, the Protestant context makes a big difference. Protestants think differently than Catholics, for better and for worse, when it comes to politics. Um, and the Christian left in these two countries was extremely uh, powerful in the 70s and 80s. And then kind of like the left itself, you know, it, it fizzles out for a variety of reasons, government repression, uh, encroaching neoliberalism, people like Ronald Reagan, all that kind of stuff. Um, really takes a toll on the left as a whole. And so the Christian contingent or component of that left kind of naturally follows those trends. Um, I'll say, though, that I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand the Christian left uh, in ways that I find sort of endlessly uh, unfortunate because it's so interesting. Uh, in the U.S. right now, and I think this discourse kind of bleeds into Canada, um, there's a lot of talk about the rise of the religious left, by which they usually mean the Christian left. Unfortunately, it erases a lot of other people. But, uh, you know, people like Joe Biden, he's a Roman Catholic. Um, everybody who spoke at his inauguration was Catholic. Uh, even the people singing were Catholic. Um, you know, Ralph uh, Warnock just got elected in Georgia, definitely an inheritor of black liberation theology. So, so there's a lot of talk about it in the air. Um, I think the, the unfortunate thing about it is um, the Christian left historically has also been out of step with Christian liberalism, right? Like uh, the Christian left doesn't really want another Joe Biden, right? If you if you came up with a good analogy, when JFK, the last uh, Catholic liberal president in the United States, was elected, um, one of his biggest uh, sets of opposition was um, Catholics who were like, uh, burning, you know, like draft documents for the Vietnam War and like stealing them and breaking into nuclear facilities and like pouring their blood all over nuclear weapons, right? This was like what it meant to be a Catholic or Christian leftist at that time. Um, I think today it's harder because the left is so fragmented and we've lost that kind of memory of what the Christian left must look like. So people kind of conflate it with its most public expression, which is liberalism. Um, that ignores and erases all kinds of other Christians who are doing things in, in way more radical ways. I think of people like Christian peacemaker teams uh, here in Canada, for instance. They're a, a nonviolent organization that uh, in Canada has been really focused on um, indigenous rights and indigenous justice in a really incredible way. I mean, they show up in ways that lots of people don't. Um, they're also very uh, influential on like the anti-fascist movement here in Toronto, for instance. So, you know, there's lots of Christians who are showing up as Christians, but people don't know where to look for them or don't know how to find them because our, our political imagination kind of stops at like 
public expressions of liberal politics. So a lot of my understanding of the Christian left is it's out there. It's very important, but you kind of have to have the eyes to see it or else it's easy to miss. And and so that was the big macro question that I asked. Uh, and you did get a little micro at the end, but I think it's worth kind of contemplating the like micro, like where is the Christian left in your community question? And so, I mean, I'm in Edmonton, you're in Toronto. I mean, the most kind of like Christian left I can kind of summon uh, you know, in my mind is, is like, you know, if churches that are involved, uh, in, you know, the greater Edmonton Alliance, which is like a, a, an outcropping of the industrial areas foundation and like Saul Alinsky style organizing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to give a bit of context, like I wouldn't necessarily frame that as super left. I mean, I think they're definitely working towards a better world. You know, they're allying with labor, but like the foundations of like, um, you know, the Industrial Areas Foundation and kind of Saul Alinsky's style of organizing is, you know, anti-communist in nature right. and also just like not interested in uh, really exercising or flexing power. Uh, is at least that's my kind of like surface level analogy or a- analysis of kind of that type of thing. Have you have you ever been to one of these industrial area foundation style events where they like I haven't no. drag a, dra- they drag they drag a politician in front and it's it's very prepared. They like it's it's something you should you should make an effort to get to one at some point. They are <laughs> yeah. they are interesting. Um, so like yeah, we have an outcropping of that here. It's called the Greater Edmonton Alliance. And it was around for a while, uh, and then it kind of faded away, and it came back recently. And I went to one of their events last year, probably before the pandemic, about a year ago. And it's funny, they, they dragged out a couple of politicians, a couple of city councillors, and they had a couple of demands around, I think, mental health and like a living wage or something. So like pretty, whatever, I mean, good things on their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they, uh, they, they all the churches who were there, they, they stand up and they say, I'm with X church and we have X many members. This is where we're located. And like the union stand up and say, I'm X union and we have this many members and this is the, what our workers do. And then, you know, they let the politician give a short speech and they essentially, then they essentially put the like politician on the hot seat and they ask a bunch of questions centered around their demands. And it's, it's an interesting model. Uh, and again, it, but it, that's as like as, as kind of radical Christian left as I've ever seen here in my own kind of context here in Alberta. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious about your own micro situation. You just mentioned one, is there any other uh, examples you can bring to mind of the kind of like the Christian left in, in practice and action? Yeah, you know, uh, like I said, the Christian left follows the problems that the left has all over the place, right? It's uh, it's not uh, not special in that respect that it's it's hard to find the radical left everywhere <laughs> right now, um, but they're out there, right? And I think uh, I'll say two things about it. One is anywhere that there are a bunch of radical leftists getting together, there's probably some Christians there. Whether or not they show up, um, you know, with a collar or with a big sign that says "I'm at X church." Um, it's important to recognize they may be there ne- nevertheless because of their faith. You know, like I, I go to a lot of a lot of demos and protests and organizing meetings here in the city. And when I go there, I'm not usually like, it's me, the Catholic here as a Catholic leftist. But but you're that's rocking, why I'm you're not rocking your like six inch cross that's like <laughs> not, not around yet. your neck. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, I think like people know, I I guess, like those who know me know that that's why I'm there, I guess, including all my communist comrades and all the rest of them. But, uh, you know, the fact is I'm, I'm there because I'm a Catholic. I'm inspired by my Christian faith, but I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not there to convert everybody else. So I guess in that respect, the Christian left is hard to find because it's kind of like, you know, 
Jesus says you should be like the leaven in the dough of the world, right? So I think a lot of Christians see themselves that way too, just trying to sort of lift everybody up. Um, so that's one side. It's it's hard to find the Christian left because we're not always on purpose. We're not always out there saying here we are. Um, the second thing though is liberation theology has been decimated for sure in Canada, but it has been internalized in some interesting ways that still exist. Um, so a couple things I'd mentioned, like the United Church of Canada, which is still the biggest Protestant church in the country, although it's declining like everybody else. Um, a lot of people don't follow what the United Church does around the world, but it is very interesting in terms of how it relates to foreign policy in Canada. And I'll give you just one example. Um, the United Church has all these relationships with Christians in other parts of the world um, on purpose. This is kind of they've cultivated these solidarity relationships over decades. And uh, they they have paid staff that goes to places like Nicaragua or places like Cuba and Venezuela or the DPRK or China, all these countries. And they talk to Christians in those countries and they ask them, what do you think about, you know, sanctions or what do you think about Canadian foreign policy? And, you know, surprise, <laughs> most poor Christians in uh, Venezuela do not want Canada to be organizing the Lima group. Right. So. Uh, the United Church brings that information back to Canada, and they do put out all kinds of actually pretty good statements about anti-imperialism in this country. Now, does the United Church have its hands on the levers of power? No. Do all of its members necessarily know that the church is doing that? No. But I think it's important to recognize that institutionally, the church has kind of uh, retained some of that memory. Um, the same is true of the Catholic Church. Uh, I mentioned the bishops can be a bit conservative. But they do have an organization called Development and Peace, which is their uh, kind of global justice organization. And they do much the same as the United Church. Um, they have these relationships with Christians and, and poor people that are not Christians in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, they shape their kind of messaging in light of all of that. Uh, in light of the pandemic, for instance, for the last year, they've been talking about the impact of sanctions um, and also the impact of uh uh, war and funding arms trades and things like that. So I would just say there's a non-institutional side of the Christian left that's very hard to see, but there's also, there is an institutional side that is still very important and, and more radical than most people might expect. Yeah, it's interesting about the United Church. My partner grew up in the United Church, and it's it's a it's fascinating to have conversations with her because our our relative experiences with Christianity are extremely different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance, mm -hmm. you know, Stephen Harper's mm -hmm. church, and uh, you know, very focused on you know essentially settler colonial style mission work, very patriarchal, very reactionary, very mm -hmm. intertwined with conservative politics, really kind of proto mega churches. Uh, you know, the Alliance. Church church in any big city the first alliance church in any big in any big city is quite often you know one of the largest protestant churches in that city mm -hmm. and um and so it's always very interesting to compare uh the the two i de and i definitely went through a phase where i was like an atheist and a dick about religion and just you know reading richard dawkins and i think that that's something that people have to grow out of because i don't think that's a very helpful thing if you want to actually start organizing and start making the world a better place like if you're going to be a dick about if you're going to be a richard dawkins style dick about religion like you're just never going to succeed or get anywhere right 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 yeah i mean that's a classic marxist advice too right marx famously an atheist for sure but uh, most people forget that, you know, in like the critique of the Goto program where he's talking about what a socialist society looks like, he thinks that 
freedom of religion is actually a pretty important bourgeois thing, even if it's bourgeois. Uh, he uh, he clashed with like Bakunin even over the question of whether or not the international should be opposed to religion. Um, so lots of complicated stuff there. There's a difference between your own theoretical commitments and your political strategy. Uh, I'll, I'll say one very funny story is uh, when I was kind of flirting with uh, really getting into political action uh, here in the city. I've been here for almost a decade now. Early on, I, I went to a, a rally and, you know, there was this Trotskyite guy selling a bunch of newspapers. <laughs> I guess that's the stereotype. Anyway, we got to, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we got to chatting and he asked why I was there. I said, well, I'm a Christian. I want to show up for this. I think it was like a, a water protector thing. And uh, he said, well, you know, Christians can't be Marxists. And I said, well, that doesn't sound right to me because there's all these Christian Marxists running around in Latin America. And uh, he couldn't comprehend that at all. And sort of fortuitously, or maybe through divine guidance, <laughs> the the next people that I met at that rally happened to be a bunch of Leninists in the Communist Party of Canada, who uh, the first thing that they said to me was, uh, oh, you're Catholic. That's great. Like, have you ever heard of Oscar Romero and El Salvador, all this kind of stuff? And I was like, OK, cool. Like, I can hang with these folks <laughs> at a very they, practical they were not, level. They were not dicks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They were good Leninists, right? You shouldn't uh, shouldn't let the uh, disagreements about heaven get in the way of what you're doing on Earth. Of, yeah, of, pra of making our lives better and in tearing down the terrible injust systems that we live under currently, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think... Know, go ahead. Well, uh, I think we have this kind of story that we tell about religion, and this is kind of the Dawkins story, but it's other people's too, where Christianity in particular is often identified with um, with conservative reactionary politics, and understandably so. I mean, oftentimes it is. No no need to erase that. Um, but people will say things like, well, Christianity, even Jesus is, is a, a great guy, but um, you know, once Christianity is actually materialized in the world, when it's actually being practiced, that's when it gets bad. And I, I think that it's important to to affirm, you know, if we want to think about how Christianity can factor into the history of, of radicalism, uh, we should look at also at people like like when Louis Riel opposes the Canadian state or when uh, when Nat Turner or John Brown are opposing slavery. I mean, one thing that they're doing is exercising their understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Right. Like this is also Christianity in practice and it's mobilized against a different Christianity in practice for sure. Um, but it's important to kind of affirm that religion is a side of struggle. And if you want it to be on your side, then you should make the effort to understand it and try to pump up the radical parts of it and, you know, not shy away from that side. Yeah. Don't be a dick. You know, people come to a struggle from all sorts of backgrounds, including religious ones and to, to discount, uh, those folks is just a great you're just doing a grave disservice to your own cause mm -hmm. and there's a, and there's a lot when you dig into those religious traditions and I, we've obviously focused on christianity today because that's my upbringing and that's obviously where you come from as well but all religions you dig into them there is a, a radical undercurrent there because like you said they all come from struggle right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so uh you know that i think this is a, an interesting way to leave the conversation i really appreciate you coming on uh, now is the opportunity to uh plug your pluggables how can people follow you on the internet what are the podcasts that you do give us uh give us your pitch sure uh you can follow me on twitter like everybody else at dean detloff um 
I am, like we said earlier, the co-host of this podcast called The Magnificast, which is about Christianity and the left. Um, it's really fun to do. I hope that it's not alienating for people who aren't Christians, but definitely you'll be helped if you are. Uh, lots of probably too many bad references to uh, evangelical popular culture, etc. <laughs> Both uh, Matt and I had some stints in like Bush era evangelicalism when we were adolescents. So uh, you can come for that and stay for the Marxism. Um Let's see. Anything else? Oh, G's Magazine. I always plug. G's uh, was actually born in Canada. It's now based in Detroit. A lot of people don't know about it, but it is the most fun thing I've ever been able to work on. Um, it's a quarterly print magazine. It's a. Uh, it comes out of a Christian tradition, but it's open to lots of spiritualities. And uh, it's a progressive print magazine, just really beautifully done. It is. Most of the editors are in a, uh, a Catholic worker community in Detroit now. And uh, just lots of incredible stuff. I think you guys probably know James Wilt if you're in the Canadian left scene. Um, he He's great, by the way. But he had my job at G's before I have it. So uh, editing a, a section on civil disobedience and faith. So anyway, it's a fantastic project. More people should know about it. They don't have any ads and need a lot of help. So G's Magazine, that's the one thing. If you don't hear anything else, go check them out. Oh, well, I will. And yes, James Wilt is is a friend of the show and has written for The Progress Report before, just like you have. So yeah, thanks again, Dean, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And folks, if you like this podcast and you want to join the nearly 400 or so folks who help keep this little independent media project going, you can do that. You can make that a reality and help keep us going by going to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons put in your credit card, whatever you can give a month, five, 10, 15, hell, $50. I don't know. Whatever you got lying around that you can afford every month really helps us out. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thank, thanks again to Dean for coming on this really interesting conversation. And, uh, and thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening and goodbye.